Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 38 is, is where we'll be this morning. We've been in the, in the middle of this battle, it seems, between the Pharisees and Jesus. And the Pharisees keep, keep picking fights with Jesus over and over and over. And this is what we're seeing in chapter 12. The first one, it happens with the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus' disciples are eating these heads of the grain and they're, they're working on the Sabbath and, and they attack Jesus for that. And then Jesus heals a guy on the Sabbath and they attack Jesus for that. And then Jesus casts out a demon from a man, as we read last week, and they attack Jesus for that. And in the midst of all that attacking, what we see today, beginning in verse 38, is Jesus sees the Pharisees again, and they walk up to him, and they say, teacher, can you show us a sign? Acting like, we really want to believe. We want to follow you. Will you show us stuff? And Jesus says, yeah, right. He calls them to the carpet on it. And what we're going to read, you're going to read it, and I'm like, man, this sounds really harsh about what's happening here. But if you remember the context, it won't at all. So let's begin reading it in verse 38. And we're going to see how Jesus talks about how Jonah and a haunted house and how family, how these all preach a message to us of following Christ. If you're able, let's stand together for the reading of the word of Christ. It'll also be up on the screen. Matthew tells us by the Spirit that then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered them, An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. When an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it roams through the waterless places looking for rest, but it doesn't find any. Then it says, I'll go back to my old house that I came from. Returning, it finds the house vacant, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and settle down there. As a result, that person's last condition is worse than the first. That's how it will also be with this evil generation. And while he was still speaking with the crowds, his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to the one who was speaking, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand towards disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray together. Holy Father, help us now as we sit under these words of your son, the one who is sitting at your right hand for us right now. Help us by the power of the spirit to hear these words. And to not be like a crowd who 
would maybe listen to Jonah, but wouldn't listen to Jesus. That we wouldn't be like a crowd who gets oohed and awed by the wisdom of others, but refuses to listen to the wisdom of Jesus. Help us now, King Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So what we saw is a little poker game. The Pharisees have their cards. They put their chips in. We want to see a sign from you, Jesus. We want to believe. We're interested in you. Show us a sign. And Jesus says, bluff. I'm calling it. You don't really want a sign from me. What does Jesus, what does Jesus tell them? Look at, look at verse 39 again. Look at Jesus' response. An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. Man, if you just airdrop into the story without the context, it sounds like Jesus is being pretty harsh. What happened to gentle Jesus carrying the lamb and all the pictures on the felt board? Now we got him calling people evil and adulterous. What's wrong with him? You can't just airdrop into the story. You gotta know the whole context. What happened last week in the story just before this? In the same zone, they tell Jesus, after he casts out a demon, they say, you and Satan share a cubicle, Jesus. You and Satan are colleagues, peers. That's how Jesus casts out demons. And now they have the audacity to come up to Jesus and say, will you show us a sign if we're real? Jesus says, oh, please. You are an evil and adulterous generation. You are a bunch of spiritual harlots, you Pharisees. You don't want anything to do with me. They just want to gather more evidence to try to mount their case for blasphemy against Jesus. And Jesus is saying, here I am, God in the flesh, God's son, God's Messiah, and you're rejecting me. Creating a religion you want. And what's so cool about what Jesus is saying right here is there's a lot of Old Testament being freighted into evil and adulterous generation. The word, the phrase evil generation is used first in Exodus. After the people are set free from Egypt and they have, they're faithless towards Yahweh, towards God. They complain, they whine, they wonder if we had it better off in Egypt. And Moses, through the Lord, tells them, you are an evil generation, spurning my goodness. And then the phrase, the adulterous generation is from Hosea where the people are committing idolatry and the Lord through the prophet Hosea tells, tells the generation, you are cheating on me. You are spiritual adulterers because God views himself as, as the groom, as the husband of the nation of Israel. And so now Jesus as the bridegroom, as, as, and we as his, the bride of Christ, Jesus as the groom now is walking through Israel and he says, y'all are like the Exodus generation. Y'all are like the Hosea generation. You are cheating on me and the bridegroom is here. You're, you're spurning my advances. If this was in today's language. Jesus is telling the crowd, you're ghosting me. You're not returning my text message, I see the bubbles that you're writing, but you don't engage with me. I saw on Facebook that you've read my message, but you're not responding. And you want a sign, you don't really want a sign. He says, I'm not gonna give you a sign. No, I will give you a sign. You see this in Jesus, look at what he says. 38, an evil adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given it, except, you know what, I'll give you a sign. You wanna know who I am? You wanna know who I really am, who I'm all about? You'll get one sign, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He says, you want to know who I am? Look at Jonah. 
And when he mentions Jonah, what's meant to happen in your minds as Matthew is a, is a Jewish writer and really embedded on the Old Testament, what Matthew wants you to do is to view this as, when he says the story of Jonah, he wants that to be seen as like a hyperlink for you. That you're, you click on prophet Jonah, bing, he takes you to the whole book of Jonah. This is, when, the, when the Bible is quoting the Old Testament, view it as hyperlinks. You click it and it takes you to that story and you bring all the here. So how in the world is Jesus saying, I am like the prophet Jonah? Who, who is Jonah? A rebellious, bitter, disobedient, jerkish prophet of God. Jesus says, that's who I'm like. How? Well, God goes to him to preach. God tells Jonah, go preach to the city of Nineveh. And he doesn't want to. Because Jonah knows what this means. You've ever wondered why? Well, why didn't Jonah go? Because Jonah knows by the prophecies, this means if I'm going to a Gentile nation and they repent and believe, this means that my home nation, Israel, is being, they are the ones that are rejecting God. They're they're turning away from God and the Gentiles are gonna be welcomed in. I don't want my people to be rejected. So he says, I know, I'll go the other way because running from God always works. He runs the other direction, tries to evade God, and some of us may be evading God this morning too. It didn't work, just like Jonah thought it was gonna work. He's on a boat. The boat is in a horrible storm. Jonah fesses up. This is my fault. I'm running from God. Sailors go, okay, what should we do? Throw me overboard. You got it. Boom. They chunk Jonah overboard. And God sends a giant fish. This is not God's wrath, a giant fish. It is his mercy. A giant fish comes and swallows Jonah, saves his life. And three days and three nights, the fish is going and pukes Jonah up close to the city of Nineveh. Jonah goes to the city of Nineveh, preaches a half-hearted sermon, repent, you better believe, revival breaks out. Man, I need to preach in fish guts or something. That would be great. Revival breaks out. I mean, four chapters, amazing story. Go, Go read it. So how is Jesus saying, that book, Jonah's ministry, that's me. And Jesus says, this is how it's like me. You Pharisees are going to throw me overboard. You think you're going to get rid of me. You're going to cast me into the depths of death. But like Jonah, verse 40, as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, but then the tomb will open its jaws. And I will walk out from the depths of death and I will preach a message, peace to you. And my disciples now who join me in my resurrection, they will preach a message of repentance and peace and salvation and revival will break out at Pentecost and revival will break out in Ephesus and revival will break out in Philippi and revival will break out to the ends of the earth. So come and believe in me because a borrowed grave will not hold me after Jesus rises from his crucifixion, paying for our sins, and he rises from the dead three days later, he says, this is who I am. I am the true and better Jonah. And here's why this matters. Look at verse 41. The men of Nineveh, so imagine the city of Nineveh, will stand up at judgment day. So Jesus realizes this. The story of Jonah actually happened. It's not just a cute Bible story we teach kids. It is history. Judgment Day is coming attraction history. 
And Jesus says, they will stand up at the judgment and with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching and look, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus says, when judgment day hits the calendar, the Ninevites will condemn the Pharisees and condemn this generation, this pagan city of Gentiles. They heard Jonah's reluctant, loveless sermon and they repented. And Jesus says, a better preacher than Jonah is here. I am not reluctant and I am full of love and you're rejecting me. A better prophet than Jonah's here. A better preacher than Jonah's here. And you're rejecting me. Just like Jonah went to the Gentiles and they heard, and the nation of Israel was rejecting God, Jesus is telling them, you are like that generation of Israel that rejected God. And the Gentiles are gonna believe. And you aren't repenting. This is the first thing Jesus says should be happening to us when we encounter him, we encounter his words. It should be the first thing that happens is repentance. That we repent from our sin and we turn toward Jesus. This is what should happen. We turn from our sin and turn towards Jesus. This is repentance, admitting I'm a sinner. That's what the Ninevites said. We, this is God's truth. We are in the wrong. We need God. Jesus is right, I am wrong, and correcting course and getting in sync with him. Have you done that? I know you come to church, and I, I know you do Christian-y things throughout the week, but have you actually repented? Have you turned from yourself and your sin and turned towards Jesus? There's a great scene in the office with Michael, Scott, and Dwight they're in the car together and Michael will only listen to his GPS system. This GPS system he trusts. And it's telling him, turn right. But they can see there's a lake right here. We can't turn right. And Dwight says, Michael, don't turn right. It's wrong. He says, be quiet, Dwight. I gotta listen to the GPS. Michael, there's a lake right here. If we turn right, we're going into the lake. No, the GPS knows what it's doing. Be quiet, Dwight turning right. And he starts to turn right. And we're going into the lake. Stop, Michael. We're going. No, Dwight, we're not. We're not going into the lake. And then they go into the lake. Car sinking down there. Car dead. They get out. All because Michael wouldn't admit, I have bad information. All because he wouldn't admit, I'm relying on a bad source. He wouldn't fess up to being wrong and humble himself and listen to someone else, even if it's Dwight. And beloved, someone greater than Dwight is here. That's our lives apart from Christ. Like the Pharisees, we think this is how we should live our lives. This is how I should view my sexuality. This is how I should spend my money. This is how I should talk about other people. This is how I should use my passions. This is how I should do what I do. This is what my life is all about. And Jesus steps in to our lives and says, you are going to crash into the lake of fire unless you turn. Unless you repent and turn to me. Have you turned around? Do you see Jesus's words and do you see Jesus's works and do you see the sign of Jonah of his death for you and his rising from you and think that's where I need to go. Someone greater than Jonah is here. 
The Ninevites responded. Now Jesus is saying, respond to me. Receive me. Rethink your life. We, we all need that initial repentance where we turn toward the love of Jesus. And Jesus invites you to do that today if you haven't. To turn from your sins, to turn from your self-destructive tendencies and turn towards Jesus. You can do it for the first time today. And if you are a Christ follower, we repent once and we repent every day. We repent that first time and then now every day of the Christian life is to be one of repentance as the great reformer Martin Luther said and number one of his 95 points that he nailed on the castle door there in Wittenberg. He said, point number one, our Lord and master Jesus Christ, when he said repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. So all of life now is directed towards Jesus. We depend on him. We get our guidance from him. We listen to his voice. We listen to his words. And where it doesn't line up, we change. It's, it's like tuning a guitar. You pluck one string and a little app tells you the sound it should be, bong, okay? You play it, bang, bong, bang. You go, that ain't right. You're turning little knobs. You have to if you want to play. But if someone refuses, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not retuning it. It's the way I want it to be. Then you can't play. It's a disaster. The words of Christ to us in the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, the, the whole Bible is the tuning fork for the Christian life. Of, it, of the notes being played from Jesus' mouth and from, from Paul and from Peter and Matthew. And I'm saying, this is where we're tuning. This is where we repent towards. I don't want you to hear the word repent as how we often hear it, as scolding. As, you need to repent, you need to repent. It is not a finger wagging from Jesus. You need, when you hear the word repentance in the Bible, hear it as God saying, come home. Come home. Imagine your child, college age child, runs away from home and is now with a bad crowd, living homeless, doing harm to their body in all kinds of ways you could imagine, and harming others. And then they, they text you, they want to talk to you, or, or they call you and want to talk to you. You're not going to say what? Repent. You're going to say, Come home. We, we just come home. That's what the word repentance really is. It is God inviting you home. So where in your life today do you need to go back home? Where do you need to repent? And come back to Jesus and come back to his ways. It could be in, in attitudes you have. It could be in spending. It could be in your emotions. It could be in words you have spoken, said about others said to someone you love. It could be hidden sins you have. Hidden from others, but they're not hidden from Jesus. It could be laziness. It could be envy, lust, whatever. Come back home. Jesus says, come home. Hear Jesus and hear him inviting you home. That's really the next point. He wants us to hear and listen to him. To hear and listen to him. Look at, look at verse 42. After he talks about Jonah, now he goes to the, the queen of the south, this is Queen Sheba. The queen of the south, 
Sheba will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why? Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. So we see two things happening. With Jonah, they repented. With Sheba, she wanted to hear Solomon. These are the two things Jesus is after for us. Repentance and now hear. Hear me. And look, he says, something greater than Solomon is here. This takes us back to 1 Kings chapter 10. Hyperlink, bing, Jesus takes us there. The queen of Sheba hears about Solomon's wisdom and she wants to see what is all the fuss about Solomon. So she takes the journey. I wanna see his kingdom. She sees Israel and is blown away. She, can't, she wants to, she gives Solomon some riddles. Solomon cracks them all. Solomon's a genius, a great leader. And she walks away praising Solomon and praising God, praising Yahweh for the work that she has done in Solomon and in his kingdom. And Jesus says, she, a pagan Gentile queen, she came to hear and responded to Solomon. And here I am, the son of God, the true king of Israel, and y'all are rejecting me. You're twisting my words. You don't want to hear what I have to say. And something, someone greater than Solomon is here. A better king than Solomon is here. And you aren't listening. So they aren't repenting. They aren't listening. Jesus says you're going to be held accountable. So for us, beloved, are you hearing Jesus? Sheba, the queen of Sheba, she crossed nations. She crossed lands to come and hear Solomon and respond to him. And Jesus says, are you listening to me? Are you hearing my words and responding to them? Do you want my wisdom for your life? Are you gonna just keep relying on the way you wanna do things? When you hear Jesus' teachings on money, do you respond? When you hear his teaching on emotions and forgiveness, do you integrate it into your life? We hear Paul's words on marriage and forgiveness and Peter's instructions about how we rely on God's word. We all have various data points and, and guidance systems in our lives from social media and magazine and parents and grandparents and family traditions and entertainment and movies and politics. What about Jesus? Are we hearing Jesus and responding is Jesus or Fox News a source of wisdom for your life? Is Jesus or politics a source of peace for you? We need to be more like the early church and realize there is no hope in politics and just to get over it. And remember, Jesus is king. Do you look at the promises of happiness that the world offers? And do you think, oh, that's a better offer than what Jesus gives? Beloved, when, when Jesus opens up the story of Jonah, opens up that story of Solomon, he is doing two really important things for us. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago, he said, I'm also greater than the temple. So you take those three things. I'm greater than the temple. I'm greater than Jonah. I'm greater than Solomon. He is saying, I am the true prophet. I am the true priest. And I am the true king that you need. Jonah was a foreshadowing of me. Solomon's a foreshadowing of me. The temple's a foreshadowing of what I offer you. And when Jesus does this, he is showing us how the gravitational center of the Bible is himself. Jonah is a road that leads to him. The temple leads to him. Solomon leads to him. And when you see that all points of the Bible lead us to Jesus, all roads lead back to him, 
You see all the prophecies, all the promises, all the hopes, and they lead you to Jesus. You realize that's home. I got to go home. I've gotten off the path a little. I got to come back home. There's no place like home. Home is where the heart is. I'm feeling whatever hallmarky statement you want. It's true in Christ. That's why Jesus says, repent and hear me and follow me. Don't, don't, we all know the difference between listening and listening. If you've ever talked with a child, you know the difference between listening and listening. Between listening and hearing. Are you hearing me? Uh-huh. I don't think you'd have heard me because you didn't do it. That's what we know. And so we think with the Christian life, oh, I'm listening. I heard. And Jesus said, are you doing? It's all the way back in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. God is not just after, pass the test, you know I'm one. Then he says, you shall love the things you do. And so what does Jesus say at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? Whoever hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise person who built his house on the rock. But whoever hears these words of mine and doesn't do them will be like the fool who built his house on the sand. And what does Jimi Hendrix sing about castles built on sand? They all fall into the sea eventually. Are you hearing and doing the words of Christ? And that's what he talks about next when he talks about a haunted house for some reason. Let's look at it. It's, it's October. We can talk about a haunted house. Verse 43. When an unclean spirit comes out of a person, that seems like, why does he make this change to this? Well, what happened? Just a, a, a scene before. He cast a demon out of a guy. That's what kind of started this whole thing ramping up even more. So he says, let's think about it. When an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it roams through the waterless places looking for rest, but doesn't find any. Then it says, I'll go back to my house that I came from. I'll go back to my old haunt where I used to be and see if I can go back. And returning, it finds the house vacant. That's the operative word. It's vacant. It's swept. It's put in order. It's clean, but empty. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and settle down there. And as a result, that person's last condition is worse than the first. That's how it also will be with this generation. So, beloved, Jesus isn't giving us a cool little story about uh, exorcism and demonology. He is using a teaching and a parable to say, this is what this generation is like. You're not believing in me. You're clean. Pharisees, you're swept. You're like a whitewashed tomb. So say later, all clean on the outside, but inside it's full of dead men's bones. And here he says, you're a house, Pharisees, that's clean and swept. You look good. You're playing all the parts, but you're empty inside. There's no life there. And this is one of the scariest things about doing ministry in the Bible Belt for me, is that all across this room, we could be people that are swept and clean and look right, but we're vacant inside. But there's no life in us. You know why I love it when my house is messy? Because it shows there's life there. So next time, when your house is messy, praise God for the messiness. There's life there. The Pharisees don't have life. It's empty. And Jesus' point is that you need to be filled. 
you need to repent and you need to hear and you need to do. You need me in your life. If not, it will only get worse. That's what he tells this generation. It's gonna get worse. That's how it will be with this evil generation. If you maintain a safe distance away from me, you can be swept and clean, but when judgment day comes, it's gonna be worse. It's, it's like an addict, this, this analogy that Jesus is using that I've seen with friends and family who bounce from rehab to rehab to, to rehab. It gets worse every time. It, it doesn't stay at the same level. It, it progresses and gets worse. But, and until it's finally kicked, until addiction is replaced by sobriety, it will continue to get worse. And Jesus is saying, until unbelief and until fakeness and until your emptiness is replaced with belief, is replaced with trust in Christ, it will not get better, it will get worse. Until your mistrust is replaced by trust in Jesus, until your pride is replaced by humility, and until the keys of your life are put into the, the hands of Christ, it will only get worse. And until Christ is treated as Lord and you listen and do what he says, until then, it will, your life will not get better. It will only get worse until we repent, until we hear and listen and do the will of God. That, that's how the passage ends. Jesus is after us doing the will of God. This is the last part. Disciples of Christ, we repent towards Jesus. We believe, we trust, and then we do what he says, as he said in Matthew 7. Hear these words and do them. So this is this final scene, how it comes out in this final scene. Look at 46, this interaction with his family. So while he's still speaking, he's still saying these things, and he gets interrupted. The crowd, he's speaking to the crowd, and his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. It's interesting that they're outside. They're not in the circle. They haven't been traveling with Jesus listening. They're on the outside because they don't believe. And look, 47, someone told him, look, your, your mom and your, and your brothers are standing outside and they want to talk to you. What could be so urgent that they want to interrupt Jesus' teaching, interrupt him rebuking the Pharisees? Well, it seems like they're trying to get him to tone it down. They want Jesus to back off a little bit. They want him to let it go. Let go your fight with the Pharisees. They've probably heard, uh, you've been called a Satanist. The Pharisees want to kill you. Why, why don't you tone it down a little bit? Let's, let's go for a sabbatical. Let's take a break. This is because they don't believe in Jesus yet. His brothers, he also has sisters, and even Mary, they're struggling to see it. And I know this for a fact because the parallel account in, Ma in Mark adds this clarity. In Mark chapter three, Mark writes, when his, this is the exact same story occurring in, in Mark three. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said he's out of his mind. Not only do they think Jesus is like, oh, he's going a little far. He's, he's, he's kind of pushing the envelope. They think Jesus is crazy. He's come unhinged. He's out of his mind. So, I mean, imagine, uh, you have to kind of get a, be a little sympathetic with him, but not all the way. There you have your brother out there telling crowds, you must eat my skin and drink my blood if you want to be saved. That would sound a little crazy. That was your sibling. He's there telling the crowds, I am equal with God. God is my father. You must worship me. 
He's telling the crowds, I am greater than the temple, the center of Jewish life. He's relocating the center of life to himself. I am greater than Jonah. I'm greater than Solomon. And so his brothers and his mom are like, he's lost his mind. So they're apologizing to the crowd. We're sorry. We're going to get him out. He's cuckoo. He's lost it. What is Jesus' response? Look at what he says in 48. So this guy tells him, hey, they're outside, 48. Jesus replied to the one who was speaking to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Oh boy, he's really lost his mind. He doesn't even know who his family is anymore. He's just a guy out here teaching, saying stuff. He doesn't even know who his parents are. He doesn't know who his brothers are. No, that's not what Jesus is after. And maybe the crowd heard him say this and they're thinking, who? They're the ones out there asking for you. She's right there. Your brothers, your little brothers, they're right there. Jesus blows them off, doesn't he? They want to talk to him. He ignores their request. Why? Because they aren't about his father's work. It's the same thing Jesus said when he was in the temple at 12 years old. And they thought they lost him. And they said, we've been looking for you. Where were you? And he says, what? Why were you looking for me? I was about my father's work. So here he is about his father's work, doing the will of his father. Is his family? No. So Jesus says, who is my family? Look at his answer in 49. It's incredible. Stretching out his hand towards his disciples. He said, here are my mother and brothers. Here they are. Don't get it twisted. This is my mother and my brothers and my sisters. Verse 50, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven, like me at that young age in the temple about my father's business, like me repenting and calling people into the kingdom, and like my brothers who have left their lives behind and have joined my kingdom, and those who are gathering with me, those who are harvesting with me, those who are preaching with me, those who are loving their enemies with me, They are my mother, my brothers, and my sisters. Man, we need this from Jesus. He looks at this crowd listening to him with his biological family behind him. He stretches his hand over his followers and says, right here. Like a priest raising his arms, giving a blessing to the people. He says, this is my family. And you may think, what about me? That's why I love that Jesus says in verse 50, whoever, whoever does the will of my father, whoever repents, whoever hears, whoever follows me, you are a whoever. You can, everyone in this room is a whoever. It doesn't matter. Oh, I've done this sin in my life. Whoever. I've done some horrible things, whoever. If you knew my background, whoever. Would Jesus forgive me? Whoever. Would Jesus accept me? Whoever. You are a whoever. And Jesus says, you are in my family. If you repent, if you turn, if you hear me, you trust me, and you do what I say, you follow me. Jesus gives us a new way to think about family. And some of us really need this. I mean, in the Middle East, family's a big deal. Family's a big deal in the suburbs. In the Middle East, it's even a bigger deal. And Jesus re 
shapes how we're to think about family. And this is good for some of us because some of us are held captive by our crazy families. And Jesus says, look, my family thinks I'm crazy. This is my family. Jesus looks at it and says, my church family is my family. Do we think like this? Not enough. We know this. We know we're called brothers and sisters. We, we know Paul talks like this. This is the main metaphor for Christians in the New Testament. It's not sheep, it's family. In the suburbs, we really need this because people make a, a God an idol out of their family. People worship their kids, give them whatever they want, bend to their wills, spend whatever is needed, sacrifice time on Sundays because of their kids, pick churches because of their kids, forego relationships with other Christians because of their family, because of their nuclear family. Jesus says, there's my nuclear family, but this is my family. Jesus would tell the people in the suburbs who think this way about family that you got it all wrong. And when you get it right, you'll find you have family in and with God. And what the New Testament wants us to see is that we don't have two orbits of family. We don't have our, our nuclear family over here and then we have our, our church family over here and then, then there's a Venn diagram of Sunday morning and missional community throughout the week where they overlap. That is a foreign idea of family in the New Testament. The consistent message of the New Testament is, is that these two orbits are one. They're, they're one with Christ now. That these are my mothers, these are my brothers, these are my sisters. That advice and help and obligation and counsel and support and meals and laughter happen in this family that is eternal. It doesn't mean we dishonor our bloodline family. It means that we have a new primary bloodline family in Christ, with Jesus, forever. See, church isn't just a service. A few songs and a sermon. This is why you will never fully experience the local church if all you do is come in here for a few songs, for a word, and then leave. That's not family. That's Chili's. And Chili's is terrible. <laughs> we need family style. It's meant to be a family of brothers and sisters in Christ where singles don't feel like they're left out because they aren't married but they have brothers and sisters here. We're married, aren't all about being so focused on marriage all the time, but we have brothers and sisters here. We're widows, don't ever feel left out because they have brothers and sisters here. We're the young, never feel like they're out of place because they have brothers and sisters. We're the old, don't ever feel like they're out of place. It's meant to be a place where it's multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multi-life stage because that's what family is. And if we can't imagine each other as family, then we're failing. And we don't understand what Christianity is. And you may hear Jesus talk this way, hear the New Testament talk this way, and think, I don't want to have brothers and sisters in Christ like that. I don't, I don't want to act like brother and sister towards others. I don't want them acting like that towards me. Well, then you don't want Jesus. You just want heaven. You really want Buddhism. You have an undercooked understanding of what discipleship with Jesus is. We together are marked by doing the will of God, together. 
obeying Jesus, the church together, obeying him, believing in him, trusting him, honoring him, walking with him. And I, uh, this is what the family of God does. And I love this last part from Jesus and we'll be done. Look at what he does in 49. I just want you to see this, this motion from Jesus. 49, stretching out his hand towards it. So put yourself there. Jesus stretching out his hands towards you. Like putting his hands on your face putting his hands on your head and rubbing your hair and smiling over you and saying, you're my family. Your family's crazy, you're my family. You feel left out, you're not with me. This is my family. Jesus, he loves you. Puts his hands on your face and says, you're my family. It's a true and better Godfather. You don't ever turn on the family. The risen Christ loves you. He's welcomed you. He's not ashamed of you. He, he, Jesus loves being around us. This is how kind he is. And so we gotta learn from him how to love being around each other, how to love repenting together, how to love hearing Jesus together and how to do, the, how to do his father's will together because that's Christianity. And that's the Christian life, when we hear, we repent, and we follow. So let's do that together now. Let's pray together. King Jesus, help us. Help us to not be like the generation who heard Jonah and repented, but we wouldn't repent now when we hear you. Help us to not be like those who would travel far and wide to listen to the wisdom of Solomon and then not listen to you. Would we not put a premium on podcasts over listening to you? Would we not put a premium over listening to TED Talks instead of listening to you? Of plowing through our book club reads and not listen to you? Help us, Jesus, to hear you and then to do what you say because we believe in you, because we love you, because you first loved us. So help us, Lord. And it's in your mighty name that we ask. Amen.